If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered podcast. To be honest, we need more listener donations to be able to keep this show alive because, as you can see, we no longer do product advertisements, and we really want to keep it this way because we don't want to sell you things you don't need. And more importantly, we knew we needed to shed the incentive of appealing to corporate sponsors so that we can maintain our very critical lenses and continue to question a lot of mainstream ideas and big green narratives. And if every listener chipped in just $2 a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today to be a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com support or at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Now, in order for us to live lives where we can respect that richness and diversity of life, we must scale down, we must slow down. And that's really what localization is about. Today, we are revisiting our past conversation with Helena Norberg-Hodge, a pioneer of the new economy movement and a leading proponent of localization, also sometimes referred to as decentralization. As the author of Ancient Futures and Local is Our Future, she also founded the International Alliance for Localization and Local Futures, which works to renew ecological, social, and spiritual well-being by guiding communities towards a sustainable future of interconnected, localized economies. I was lucky to grow up in Sweden where we had beautiful wild nature and and people tend to spend a lot of time outside, so my fondest memories are outside with my parents, picking mushrooms in the autumn and by the sea in the summer, and yeah, I was very privileged that way. But I became passionately involved in defending nature after I arrived in a place called Ladakh, or Little Tibet, which had just been opened to outsiders after having been sealed off from the world really through forever. It was snowed in in the winter and was so remote up on the Tibetan plateau, part of Tibet that belonged to India. And in the modern era, it was very sensitive strategically. So there were armies on the border and no one was allowed to go there. 
And then it was thrown open in the mid-70s, and I came out as one of the first foreigners. I was a linguist, and I was going to help make a film team and just stay there for six weeks. But I absolutely fell in love with the place and the people and stayed on at first to do a dictionary and help to write down the spoken language for the first time. And then as I was collecting folk stories and learning the language and going through this region, which is quite big, but with a small population, about 100,000 people, I realized that as it had been opened up to tourism, it had been opened up to development, and there were all these changes coming in, all of them based on fossil fuels and all of them glamorizing an urban consumer culture. And I ended up at first trying to counter that with renewable energy and with information about the West. And so that was the beginnings of my becoming very actively and passionately involved in defending nature worldwide. In your film titled The Economics of Happiness, it starts off by saying that today, not only do we have social, economic, and ecological issues, which we've become quite familiar with at this point, it also says that we're facing a spiritual crisis. Can you walk us through what you see as our most prevalent big picture issues today, as well as help us understand what you mean by us having a spiritual crisis? Yes, I mean, I came to see from this unusual vantage point of living inside an ancient nature-based culture, essentially an indigenous culture, I came to see that our dominant economic system has brought a multitude of systemic problems. And I saw it there in a very, very clear way where advertising, schooling, virtually all images glamorized an urban consumer culture and made people feel stupid and backward if they lived closer to the land. And if they were farmers, they were nobody. I saw that the whole system, by subsidizing, in the modern era, subsidizing global trade, destroyed the local economy and created this ever-increasing dependence on transported goods and especially food, I saw suddenly butter arriving in the local market and selling for half the price of butter, a local butter having been transported for a week over the Himalayas. It cost half the price of butter from the farm down the road. And of course, suddenly air pollution, plastic packaging, refrigeration, huge impact on, on the environment. And I saw that suddenly people pushed into the city were looking for artificially scarce employment. Mm. That had never existed before. People, there was plenty of work to do to provide your food, your clothing, your shelter, but there had never been such a thing as unemployment. And now suddenly fighting for scarce jobs led to local friction and divisiveness. And... I saw that the breakdown of the connections to nature and the connections to each other led to a deep spiritual crisis. And I, I think that it's hard for us to see how it is that everything from climate change to the widening gap between rich and poor 
which many people may not realize, we have a worldwide epidemic of depression, anxiety, addiction, and even suicide among young people all around the world. But we just, first of all, many people are not aware that it's worldwide. And the tragedy is that many people blame themselves. And it's it's absolutely tragic. I mean, particularly for parents, if their child commits suicide, you know, the self-blame and the guilt is just horrendous. And we are working very hard to try to get people to look up at the big picture and to see there's something going on here beyond me. We need to work together to change a system that creates so much competition, such a sense of loneliness and isolation, such a deep insecurity and loss of self-esteem. And this is coming from a system. It's, It's ultimately an economic system. And yeah, there's a lot more to say. <laughs> I mean, part of it, part of it is also that this system is pushing us all to run faster and faster and faster, and actually to work much harder than we used to in really ancient nature-based cultures, anyway. Mm. And the speed leads to a superficiality of contact. It leads to superficiality. That means. Because our encounters are fleeting and, you know, very short, the superficial becomes important. So it becomes important whether you have a fancy car or whether you're very pretty. And and the qualities of being kind or intelligent or having a sense of humor or being good at something, all of that becomes less important. And we don't feel that we're known for who we really are. We don't feel... Yeah, that we have the deep connection that we evolved with, mm. and that creates a deep sense of longing and spiritual poverty. I feel like because we have a broken and misvalued economic model, we really have to question the idea of wealth, and we have to question the idea of poverty. And I feel that when we speak of poverty, to me, that's a sweeping statement that doesn't actually reveal how the people in that community is doing, because I think. When we have a community that has a localized economy, people can be considered poor relative to the global economy, but still be living in ways that are self-sufficient and even abundant with their own standards. But where I personally see issues arise is when we have people living in poverty while being dependent on the national or global economy, where their relative lack of financial wealth leads to their oppression and marginalization. And you touched on this earlier, and I believe you illustrated this point in your book, Ancient Futures, as well, where you spoke to your experience witnessing the transformation that happened for a little Tibet, going from being self-reliant to them being influenced by the outside markets and Western idea of progress, where they then became vulnerable to social and environmental injustice entering the context of that global economy. So I guess, can you expand more on this idea, challenging our persistent idea of relative wealth equating with any community's welfare? Yes, and it's also a little more complicated than that because in the modern economy, it has been assumed that self-reliance, which is defined as subsistence, is the enemy, that it's the most horrible backbreaking, you know, terrible existence. And so we've had hundreds of years of support for what we call progress and growth. And it's really because I got this very rapid 
the change to Ladakh came so rapidly, and so I got this very dramatic picture of it, that you could see very clearly that traditionally people had land, they had a house, they had clothing, they had food, fresh food, and they didn't have to pay a penny for it. There was local trade, there was regional trade, there was even global trade, but most of the global trade was for luxuries, not for everyday needs. And the the picture that's being painted is that people who live like that and who do not have hunger, who are well fed and and really not not suffering, that's defined as zero. So when they move into the city and earn fifty cents a day, that's calculated as progress. So it looks on the chart as though millions, billions of people have moved out of poverty in China and India in the last 20 years or so. And it's it's really not true when you look at the reality on the ground. And then you have, as you also say, you know, when you're more self-reliant in that way, you have you have really a genuine wealth that that we have lost in the West. I mean, you have the wealth of having access to really fresh, uncontaminated food. You have the wealth of having so much time. I would say this issue of time is perhaps one of the most important, and I really worry that the current system is pushing us all to run so fast just to survive, and even as activists trying to raise awareness or protect the forest or protect something, we're all running faster and faster. And and it prevents us from looking at the bigger picture and just stopping and seeing how is it that there are so many problems? You know, how is it that we have this real epidemic of depression around the world? And, you know, what are really the causes of climate change? You know, how can it be that we only hear about us changing our light bulb and, you know, driving a different car and never talk about industry and what happened when industry all moved to the so-called developing world or the poor countries and thereby massively increased emissions. You know, almost everything we need is produced in China. Everything is transported much further and packaged, you know, much more extensively. And and yet we don't get to hear about industry changing. We just get to hear about us not using, you know, single-use plastic and so on. It's, It's a very, very unfortunate that we're not getting the big picture. Mm. So um, to come back to the poverty thing, you know, there are also studies that will show that, of course, also if you live live side by side with people who are much better off than you are, that definitely creates more problems. And, and in cultures that are more egalitarian, I think there have been studies that show that people are generally a bit more contented. But that's a different... That's different from the issues that we're trying to raise awareness about, which is this fundamental shift of pushing people into mega urban centers and destroying rural society. We urgently need to understand the link between the globalizing corporate economy and mega urbanization, which if it continues, we are walking straight into the arms of drones and satellites and you know, 3D printing, high-tech digital economy where the human is being dumped and where, you know, the capacity for human beings to feel that they have meaningful work and that they're relating to each other in a meaningful way uh, will be, you know, decimated. And Mm. so we've got to understand there's this other path 
that we can already see if we look more closely around the world that there is another path being built from the bottom up that you know we call localization. It's about rebuilding more local, human-scale, face-to-face relationships, more real human interdependence, and more clear relationship between what we use, what we eat, what building materials we have, or the resources we use, and the land from which it comes. And so that is about shortening distances wherever possible. It's not an absolute. But in that new localization movement, we see that you have more intergenerational community, that things are less competitive, people have longer, more meaningful relationships, and you you can definitely see a pattern whereby people enjoy their lives more. Mm. So it's almost as if in our pursuit of modernization and our perceived view of luxury, we're losing sight of what is truly meaningful and important to our holistic well-being. And localization, in part, can help to bring us closer to the things that really matter to us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, we need to also remember that the sort of training for us to be looking at consumerism and so on as a way forward is already in schools. It's already in the school books and it's already in segregating children into separate age groups. So there are all kinds of structural ways that we're being encouraged to go down a path of competition, artificial scarcity, and losing sight of the the living earth and of the living people on which we ultimately depend, but we're now being made to depend on them through a vast, complicated, techno-economic, global structure that we're not being educated to look at. We're not being given the choice to say, wouldn't we rather subsidize fresh, untainted food and and support local farmers rather than subsidizing transport, fossil fuels, and plastics, refrigeration, and monocultures. The large-scale system depends on monoculture in the land for food, for forestry, fishery, larger and larger scale, larger and larger scale machinery that can't deal with diversity. And at the same time, we're having a consumer culture, a global consumer culture that these days allows different racial characteristics to be seen. It used to be totally sort of white-skinned and inherently white. Now you can see people with different racial characteristics, but they all share the glamour of an urban consumer culture, and that's being imposed and again, it's a monoculture, does not genuinely you know, respect real diversity. So mm-hmm. part of what we have to recognize is we have a system that in its techno-economic global structures can really not tolerate life because it can't tolerate the fact that every single blade of grass, every single cell in our bodies, every single one of us is unique and changing. Now, in order for us to live lives where we can respect that richness and diversity of life, we must scale down, we must slow down. And that's really what localization is about. Mm. 
Well, not only do we have a globalized economy that puts everybody almost in competition with one another, we also have globalized politics where instead of governments focusing on serving their own people's needs, they may also be making decisions based on what can give them a leg up in the international community that may not necessarily always be the best for their own people. What are some ways you see globalized politics having impacted the lives of everyday citizens around the world? Yeah, very good question, you know, because what I'm seeing is that from my native country of Sweden, you know, to America where I've lived and to India and Ladakh and China, Korea, where we also do work, we're very unusual because we're a very small organization, but we work really globally at the grassroots. And what we're seeing is that when politicians seek election, they're talking to the citizens who are voting for them, and they talk about our needs, and they talk about the environment. The minute they're in power, they seem to be listening to other voices. Mm. And voices do come from the very, very large sums of deregulated finance in the global marketplace, so the news will be about what does the market think of this? How are the markets? How's the market responding? What is the market? And that market is essentially ruled now by algorithms. You know, these huge flows of money that are being created by deregulated financial institutions and banks, deregulated even though in 2008 the whole world knew that we needed to regulate the banks. It was so clear that in their blind trading they were ignorant of the damage they were creating at the, you know, to society. And yet it didn't happen because, you know, we were told, oh, the banks are too big to fail. We can't allow them to fail. And, of course, there would be a policy path whereby we don't have to make these institutions fail. We just have to, first of all, intellectually get our head around what's going on in this deregulated marketplace meaning there are treaties, global treaties, global conventions, even the climate conventions that are now being shaped by enormous corporations and deregulated money. And they are continuing to further the wealth of a smaller and smaller minority of people. And through these giant corporations, creating in every single country an obscenely wide gap between rich and poor, and all the time promoting a path that uses more energy, more technology, and leaves more people behind. Unemployment, poverty increasing in every country. So the global politics really is national governments responding to the pressure of the deregulated global market. And the deregulation is particularly through trade and finance treaties. But even in the climate conventions, tragically, it's big business that's setting the agenda. And that, among other things, is why we don't hear about the business side of things. We just keep hearing about the individuals. And it's, I feel so sorry, especially for people in the West who are being made to feel that it's your fault. You're destroying the climate. You know, you're taking us towards extinction. And, you know, it's only because you're so greedy and you just want to hold on to your lifestyle. It's a completely misleading narrative. The understanding of how our governments responding to the global market 
are selling us and the planet down the tube and able to do so because they are too specialized. They're allowed to tell a story about growth and progress. They're allowed to tell us and themselves that they have to keep growing their global trade and global corporations in order to provide jobs, in order to keep the world turning around. So it's really up to us who are feeling the pain at the grassroots, at the level of poverty and the the eco side that's going on, Mm. to have greater ecological as well as economic literacy and spell out much more clearly these connections so that politicians will now be listening to civic society and we will have representatives who actually are speaking the truth, who are addressing the the need for, first of all, genuine democracy, which means that you do not have global media determining the debate, shaping the discourse. You actually have sources of information that are provided through civic society's consent. You don't have big money funding the big ideas. You have, you know, there's a lot of awareness about the lobbying that goes on, the direct lobbying of big money in Mm -hmm. politics. But that does not take into account, I think, the much more dangerous way that big money is shaping the discourse and the narrative through the media, even through funding in science and academia. And it's partly that that has led to this narrow fixation on carbon and a very, very high tech, essentially an embrace of robots and satellites as the way to deal with climate change because countries are going to be forced to calculate things through high-tech sensors. Agriculture is going to be with robots, uh, satellites. They're even talking in the FAO about the gamification of agriculture that people don't want to farm, but you know, young people now love playing games on the screen and now they'll be able to do that. And they're already starting you know, to have a situation where you can sit and on the screen manipulate so that 2,000 miles away the harvest or the watering or whatever will take place. And I can tell you that it is absolute ecocide suicide. It is completely wrapped up in what buyer wants in terms of selling patented seeds genetic modification, and now the climate emergency is being used as an excuse to impose this on countries. Mm. I don't like where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I would li- I'd just like to say, I just so hope the listeners will not hear this only as depressing, but hear it as an opportunity to, in a strategic way, raise awareness about the key elements of a system that is imposing systemic crises. You know, if you can keep in mind that here is a way of really seeing a thread, a a way that we can deal with the multiple problems in a single focus. And this doesn't mean that all activists around the world are suddenly going to link into one homogenous organization. 
But I think if people who are concerned about poverty, people concerned about climate, people concerned about the epidemic of depression, the loss of democracy, you know, on and on, can see that all of us must focus on this economic transition. And it's an economic transition that is about regaining genuine democracy. And it's something I believe that could, you know, the big picture could in a relatively short time, lead to the most powerful, the biggest people's movement we've ever had. You know, until now, most of the movements have been focused more narrowly. They've not been touching on elements that really affect every human being. Well, seeing as that we're on a projected path to continually globalize, Are there positives that come from this trend? And if so, how can we move forward to take the good parts of globalization while localizing our economy and politics? Well, I think we need to understand that it's the globalization of the economy that is problematic. And that is essentially because our governments have been rolling out the red carpet for global business. And by that, we mean multinational organizations that can, as they do, threaten national governments by saying, if you don't do as we say, we'll go elsewhere. Now they have been building up a legal structure that says, if you don't do as we say, we will sue you. And we want you to sign in black and white right here that you will not do anything that could reduce our profit-making potential. Mm -hmm. So we don't know about this, but what's being created is a global government that is profit über alles, and it's profit for the few at the expense of the many. I really don't believe that most people in this world would go along with this if they knew about it, if they understood it, and if it could be spelled out in a simple, clear language for people. So I think that for us, it is really clear that the biggest problem we have is that too few people are actually looking at those bigger connections in globally. And I think it's better to, rather than talking about taking the good parts of globalization, I would prefer that we talk about how can we ensure that we have more intercultural dialogue, exchange, deep dialogue, and collaboration. So we very much need much better ways of really knowing what's going on in the rest of the world because we're being too influenced by the dominant narrative. So we actively have to look for sources of information about what's going on to have a better sense. And we need to to be collaborating and particularly destroying multiple myths that separate the global north from the global south, the the so-called developed from the so-called developing countries. And that's partly what we have done in our work is to sponsor people from the so-called third world to come to the West, to engage with people here who are trying to change things here because they know that it's not working for us, either socially, ecologically, or democratically. And that's a very important reality check for people who are led to believe that, you know, in America, the streets are paved with gold and we don't really have to work and we've got so much money and it's just an amazing life. So reality checks going both ways is very important. Mm. 
And also seeing as that our current uh, multinational corporations already have so much power and influence, and also that we have an economic system set up to continually benefit those at the very top, how do we work with this going forward? And what do we need most to be able to localize our economy? Can we do this as individuals? What do we need most to be able to go against the grain of how our uh, society currently functions? My experience is that the number one thing we should try to do is to link up with some like-minded individuals and ideally close to where we live, but otherwise identify some, you know, sources from some websites, some magazines, something so that you're engaging with people who are more or less on the same page to try to sort of imagine what can I do as a single individual? It feels far too daunting, but The minute you change the I to a we, suddenly that's deeply and and soulfully empowering. Ideally, we also will understand that we need a two-track thing where we start building sort of economic lifeboats right now. And these lifeboats, what's so wonderful about them is that we can simultaneously increase the quality of our lives, the health of our food, the health in our homes in terms of building materials, everything, and build deep community. So taking steps to localize and where you live, it can be in the city, it can be in the country, there are millions of initiatives going on. But this is another aspect of the information that we need to look for because we don't get it through the mainstream channel. But there's so much more going on that is genuinely healing, that is genuinely taking us in exactly the opposite direction of the path that big business and government are trying to take us. And I rejoice every day at getting as much good news virtually in my inbox as I get bad news. And I'm amazed at how much is happening when there's so much pressure on us, you know, time pressure, the taxes, the subsidies, the regulations are all working in the opposite direction. But people power and the power of nature just shines through we long for something else. It's how we evolved. We we are a part of nature, and we do need to feel connected to other people. We, you know, we've been told that no, no, no. You should be proud of not needing anyone, and proud of being able to be alone, and all this. No, we evolved in groups. So if we start taking those steps to rebuild at a deep level, those more community-based, ecologically-based. And again, ecologically based can be right in the city. We are starting to build the new world and we are finding satisfaction from it. It can improve our physical as well as spiritual well-being. But we also try to encourage people to pursue the second track, which is to also, ideally as a group, pursue activities to educate ourselves more and to help get the word out about the bigger system, the bigger picture, and how we have to rethink politics and the economy. And that is how do we put pressure to start shifting taxes, subsidies, and regulations to support more human-scale, bioregional, even national businesses, 
as opposed to global, unaccountable, and sort of often invisible corporations. And this has to do with, you know, you know, there's a whole series of things that have to do with banking, who makes money, makes money, meaning literally, who has the right to print money? Where is the world going to go if we move away from a, uh, a, if we move to a cashless society? It's actually a very, very dangerous step. And I'm worried that there are so many idealists who think that blockchain could work for us. Everything we're seeing is that it's actually part of the direction that the corporate system wants us to go. It's completely dependent on these digital robotized systems. And now there's a big push to make carbon the currency, carbon which will be measured and and with sensors and so on, which will be measured in ways that ordinary humans can't. And so it means a reliance on patented expensive technology and a type of enslavement through this very expensive and technology that's completely linked to the military as well. So it's a very it's a very frightening, very inhuman path that is being promoted. But I've been just recently at meetings, and I was just recently at a meeting where the head of the IMF was there, and I, I had time to talk to her at length, and I got to speak, you know, on a panel with the head of finance in the EU, and and someone from Unilever, and so on. And it's so clear that they don't have the big picture, so they can happily mouth mantras about growth. And the big defense they've been having for decades now is that, well, yes, the global economy hasn't worked very well in the West, but don't anyone try to, you know, tell us that it hasn't benefited millions, billions of Chinese and Indians. It's not true. In a real sense, it is not true. You know, when you've gone in a place like Delhi from a city where people could survive to one where now they regularly have alarms so you can't let children out because the air is so polluted. When you have the gap between rich and poor growing the way it is, when you have fundamentalism and factions and racism growing as it is, we really do have to wake up and um, identify the link between uh, you know, before I mentioned climate and depression and so on, but I didn't mention fundamentalism, whether Christian, Islamic, Hindu, Buddhist. I didn't mention a politics of identity where, you know, people are being encouraged and the whole system encourages a narrow focus on very narrow special interest instead of looking at the bigger pictures where we can link hands for change that would benefit all of us.
What's an uplifting social media account or publication or book that you've read? I love Resurgence magazine from England. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? <laughs> I basically tell myself to be grateful for the beauty and the the joy that's still around me and alive. And I just I've tried to flood myself with that feeling of gratitude,、mm. and also to feel grateful for the fact that I have very meaningful work that keeps me going. Yeah, what's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Making sure that I get enough exercise every day. I'm trying to walk a minimum of an hour a day, and also trying to spend more time meditating. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably and regeneratively? Well, you know, I'm I'm trying to do more writing about liberating people from the guilt feelings of not living the green life, which is for most people too expensive. My husband and I can actually afford to buy local organic food, and that's what we do. But I do not believe that we should be telling people you must do this. Uh, or otherwise, you're not pure enough. So there's a whole there's a whole discussion there about changing our individual lifestyles that I want to write more about.、Mm. I'm definitely with you on that, and look forward to reading your writings on this.、Uh, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? My absolute conviction that people all around the world want that deeper connection with each other and with nature. They're showing it in a million ways. If you look at the pattern of wealthy people who can afford it, they're spending more time in nature. Many of them are turning to farming, and we mustn't fall for the corporate trap of calling it elitist and dismissing it. We should be looking at the evidence that people actually want to have those deeper connections, whether it's you know connection to animals, connection to nature, connection to each other. I can show you you know dozens of projects. That also show that that heals deeply, heals people from addiction, from anger, prisoners who are gardening. There, you know, these beautiful demonstrations that human beings, by nature, want connection, want love, and once they get that, they are loving and wonderful people. So the my great faith in human nature that goes against the dominant narrative. That's what gives me hope.、Mm. Well, thank you so much for inspiring us to really take a step back and to examine and understand this bigger picture. We would, of course, love to keep learning from you. So, where can we find your books online and follow Local Futures? Well, I'm on our website, localfutures.org. So, I hope that people are going to be reading my new book, "Local Is Our Future," and I hope that they look at the economics of happiness, which again they can find on our website. Localfutures.org. Perfect. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? To keep dreaming, but really turn it into a dream, not just of the earth, but of people who are happy and healthy. So, I think we need to be aware that there is a path that is equally healing for people as it is for nature, and it's the same direction. And so it's so wonderful that you have a message that you can bring to people who are right now being scared, you know, are scared of the green message. So my message is to dream of of human and ecological well-being.
This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. And to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support. So if you value independent media and counterculture conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Tear Down the Wall by Forest Vale. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Kentieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>